X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Tuesday, April 20th. Today, back in the day 75 years ago, the League of Nations was dissolved. Efforts to create a peaceful community of nations began in Europe after the 19th century Napoleonic Wars. During this time, international laws were developed, such as the Geneva Conventions, which dealt with humanitarian relief during wartime. During World War I, leaders of the world were looking to organize in a way that would make war obsolete. It wasn't until 1919 that 44 countries signed the final covenant of the League of Nations. The U.S. never joined the League, despite President Woodrow Wilson's efforts in establishing it. When war in Europe flared up again in the 1930s, operations of the League were reduced greatly. In 1943, the Allied Powers agreed to replace the League of Nations with what is now known as the United Nations. On April 20, 1946, the League of Nations was officially dissolved. Today, back in the day, the U.S.-financed Bay of Pigs invasion failed. Cuba, while technically independent, had been a hotspot for American business and military interests since after the Spanish-American War in 1898. 60% of rural properties were owned by non-Cubans, and thousands of U.S. Marines were stationed in Cuba for decades. In 1952, Fulgencia Batista orchestrated a coup, which was resisted by several groups, including Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement. Castro's party took control of the island in 1959, much to the dismay of the U.S., after Castro nationalized the oil industry and a series of other political and economic jabs, relations between Cuba and the U.S. were strained, to say the least. In 1960, the U.S. was publicly trying to repair relations with Cuba, but at the same time, the CIA was planning an assassination attempt on Castro. President Kennedy put the plan into motion, training anti-Castro Cuban exiles to storm the southwest coast of Cuba, and kill Castro. The plan failed, embarrassing the U.S. in one of the worst defeats of the Cold War. Today, back in the day, in 1825, botanist David Douglas arrived at Fort Vancouver. Douglas was a Scottish botanist who had traveled along the American Northeast collecting and naming various North American trees. His second trip to the U.S. was funded by the Hudson's Bay Company, He reached Fort Vancouver on April 20th, 1825, and would spend the rest of the year traveling along the Columbia and other rivers. His legacy lives on in the tree named after him, the Douglas fir. Douglas also named a whole lot of other Pacific Northwest favorites, including the Sitka spruce, Oregon grape, western white pine, and many others. He sent specimens and seeds of many of these plants back to England, where they became immensely popular. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Jonathan Moss of Bike Portland. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregon Democrats reached a deal with Republicans to stop delay tactics in the legislative session. Democrats and Republicans in the state legislature have been at odds for weeks. 
as Republicans have attempted to stall Democratic agenda items from passing. Republicans previously demanded that all bills on the floor be read verbatim, causing a huge backlog of proposed bills. Now Republicans have agreed to end that tactic, but only for something else in return. State Democrats will relinquish a legal advantage they have when it comes to redrawing Oregon's congressional districts. These district lines will decide which party gets a new seat this year in the federal House of Representatives. The district map that passes will be in effect for the next 10 years. Under this agreement, any congressional district map will need bipartisan support to pass. The new deal involves membership in the House Redistricting Committee, one of two groups in charge of redistricting. Republican House Minority Leader Christine Drazen was added to the House Redistricting Committee, while Republican Representative Shelley Davis has been promoted to co-chair. This means that the committee now has three Republican and three Democrat members. So no map can be approved just along party lines. In exchange, state Democrats will have an easier time passing key legislation that will keep the state functioning. It's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 473 new coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total number of cases in the state to 175,592. There were no new deaths. The death toll sits at 2,460. As of Monday, nearly 37% of Oregonians have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. Nearly 24% of Oregonians are fully vaccinated. Oregon health officials are considering indefinitely extending mask rules. While states like Texas are getting rid of mask rules entirely, top health officials in Oregon might require masks for the foreseeable future. The proposal would require masks until they are no longer necessary to address the effects of the pandemic in the workplace. But it does not specify exactly how low the case count will have to be before the rules are lifted. Also included in the health proposal are sanitation requirements and protocols for addressing outbreaks at work. The proposal received a record number of public comments. Nearly 60,000 Oregonians signed a petition opposing the extension. Final decision on a mask rule extension will be on May 4th. Betting on sports is now legal in Washington. Last year, the state legislature approved of sports betting at tribal casinos. It was the 21st state to legalize this type of gambling. On Friday, terms and regulations were announced to open the first sports book in two Tulalip casinos along the I-5. At least four other tribes are in negotiations with Washington State's Gambling Commission to open their own sports betting operations. People will be allowed to bet on professional leagues, the Olympics, college athletics, and esports. Importantly, people will not be allowed to bet on college games involving Washington State schools. In a press release to Lalip, Chairwoman Terry Gobin said this, quote, The revenue sports wagering provides, like all tribal gaming revenue, stays in Washington, creating jobs and increasing charitable contributions that benefits communities throughout the state. Senator Jenny Burdick will step down at the end of this legislative session. Senator Burdick will become a member of the Pacific Northwest Electric Power and Conservation Planning Council. Burdick cannot sit in the state legislature while also serving on the board. 
Burdick has worked as an Oregon state senator for a quarter of a century. She was Senate Majority Leader until 2020, when Senator Rob Wagner took over. She's best known for her commitment to gun control legislation. Burdick championed laws that took guns away from stalkers and domestic abusers and from people experiencing mental health crises. Her retirement leaves her seat in the Senate open midterm. Her successor will be appointed by the Multnomah and Washington County Boards of Commissioners. Leica teamed up with a historically black college to build a one-of-a-kind animation studio. When you hear the words stop motion, you'll probably think of the pre-digital special effects for movies like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and 1933's King Kong. These days, Hillsborough is home to one of the nation's most critically acclaimed animation studios, Leica. It's the studio that's behind movies like Coraline, Paranorman, and the upcoming adaptation of Pinocchio. Stop motion as an art form is often woefully overlooked and underfunded. Furthermore, animation and the movie industry at large has historically been very white. That's why Leica is teaming up with Bowie State University to create the first stop motion animation studio at a historically black university. Bowie State was recently named as having one of the best art programs at a historically black college, and its animation program is one of the fastest growing majors. The partnership also includes internship and career opportunities for students at Leica. The program's ultimate goal is to inspire black students to explore animation and develop the tools to tell their own stories. And finally, some good news. Some Multnomah County libraries are opening in June. One year ago, libraries were some of the first major institutions to close to the public. The Multnomah County library system took a big hit. To avoid layoffs, library workers were reassigned to temporary jobs or asked to retire. And we lost a major community resource. Now on June 1st, the Capitol Hill, Gresham, Holgate, Kenton, and Midland libraries will reopen at a reduced capacity. Computers, public bathrooms, and printers will be available to the public. And in-person browsing will be allowed in 30-minute segments. Multnomah County Library will also continue online holds and curbside pickups. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Now we'll hear hosts Morgan Jones and DJ Ambush interview Jonathan Moss of Bike Portland. They discuss the bike bill, new carless bridges, the I-5 expansion, and more. In 1971, upon the seat of a bicycle, Oregon lawmakers signed the bike bill into effect. It requires the Oregon Department of Transportation, or ODOT, to use at least 1% of highway fund dollars on active transportation infrastructure. But it's not just limited to bicycles. In fact, it extends to all forms of non-motorized transportation. Now, 50 years later, some Oregonians are pushing to raise that number to 5% with the proposed Safe Routes for All bill. Here to talk with us about these efforts is the founder and editor of Bike Portland, Jonathan Mouse. Jonathan, how are you? I'm well. How are you all? Pretty good. Doing great. Thank you. Yeah. Just for a bit of background, what kinds of projects has the bike bill helped fund in the past 50 years? Oh, well, uh, there's been quite a few. It's averaged about $8 million a year in terms of the fund since the date I've seen from like 1986 or so to the present day. So 
Mm. Usually what you see are things that are um, adjacent to large highway expansions or freeway projects. The one that most folks may know is like the I-205 multi-use path. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a a classic one. Um, A lot of times they won't put it directly next to like the freeway or the highway. They'll they'll spend the money on on a bike lane on on a different project. So uh, it's kind of hard. It is really actually difficult to tease out which ones. But I think, you know, there's there's pieces of it sprinkled all over. I'm pretty sure that you think Esplanade had some uh, you know, uh, highway fund dollars in it, stuff like that, like mm-hmm. bill stuff. So it, it's kind of sprinkled all over the all over the state at this point. Mm. Uh, Portland is often named among the best cities for bikers, but the bike bill extends to the whole state of Oregon. Is there support for this new bill uh, beyond city limits? Yes, there is. And the, the advocates that are pushing for this, uh, which is led by the Street Trust, a Portland-based group that used to be called the Bicycle Transportation Alliance, who is interestingly the group that sort of came to prominence 20 or so years ago by suing uh, the city of Portland for not, for not the enforcing the bike bill. So mm. kind of a, a fun, a fun twist there, but they, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. What was the question again? I got a little, a little off track. there. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was asking if there was support for the bill out uh, beyond city limits. Oh yeah. Yeah. I started talking about the, the advocates because they, they're trying to be really careful to not make this look like it's, just a portland thing knowing Mm. that the legislators down in salem don't often uh love to sort of do what portlanders are telling them Mm. so they've gotten a lot of support from folks in eugene uh there's a eugene group that's speaking up about Mm. it a lot um there is a commissioner out in yamhill county who's been sort of uh, holding the rural you know representation vibe uh, and has been talking about the importance of uh, giving people even in rural areas where a lot of times the only sort of public space that people in rural areas can move around on is is the street it's mm-hmm. sort of this this myth of rural rural Oregon that you can just kind of walk everywhere but it's mostly private property so there's a lot of reasons that that rural folks would be interested in say building another you know uh, bank Vernonia trail or something like that which is like a car feed path out in between banks and Vernonia so um, yeah there's there's folks from all over I think that's one of the challenges is trying to get more rural people to to really care about this and to contact their their reps down in Salem. Mm. What does the opposition really look like to this bill? Well, there's no, you can't really stand up and say, hey, I'm against spending more money on biking and walking. That's just not, (laughs) (laughs) no no one's really that, that sort of silly to do that. But what happens, what often happens is y'all might may know with, with other uh, other issues, you know, that, that people don't want to support, they'll find other ways uh, to sort of say why they can't, they just can't come around. And what I've heard so far uh, are concerns that uh, there's some other stipulations in the bill that's being proposed that would sort of expand the types of projects that would trigger this new funding, right? So there are people mm. in, yeah, so there are pre- people in counties, in rural areas, and I know like the Association of Oregon Counties has raised concerns that um, if this is expanded to right now the, the bike bill spending is only triggered on major highway uh, reconstruction projects uh, and they wanted to add in there that it would apply to like resurfacing projects to sort of expand that definition because ODOT would say hey we're not re- reconstructing this highway we're just you know uh, buffering on the edges and stuff so we don't have to we don't have to trigger the bike bill uh. on this one y'all so so people are trying to say make it a resurfacing uh, stipulation as well so some counties are saying hey if you say that we have to uh, spend money, spend extra money on biking and walking, even for a resurfacing project. Well, then that's going to require us to spend more money 
uh, away from sort of road maintenance, right, and on bike lanes mm. and sidewalks. And so they're they're complaining that it might be uh, sort of an undue, unintended consequence and, and not allow them to maintain roads as much. <laughs> wow. <laughs> They'll go through all people. People will go through all sorts of mental gymnastics to, to just not support something that might, you know, encourage biking and walking. Uh, you'd be amazed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that wild. Uh, Portland currently has three car-free bridges under construction. Could you tell us more about them and what we can expect to use them? Yeah, this this is really exciting. And I think this is just a, a coincidental timing thing, not, 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 not some sort of, you know, uh, you know, complicated plot about having these all at the same time. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, real, the reality is, you know, when you've, when you've got the whole city of Portland apparatus and every, everybody in, in, in terms of, of that agency, you know, the Bureau of Transportation, there's really no road. They don't really do road addition projects. So the big, they're not expanding freeways, the city of Portland and stuff like that. So when they go for these big grants at the federal level, and the federal government isn't really, you know, giving a lot of grants out necessarily for right. Uh, expanding roads and highways is sort of a, a different pot of money. So what ends up competing really well, since we've done a lot of the sort of more standard bike projects to some degree, are these bridge projects that can really make mm. really important connections in the community. So right mm. now, we just happen to have three that are under construction simultaneously, which I'm sure I doubt has ever happened in the city. So uh, let's see, the first one, the one that's leading the pack right now is already in place, and it's over on Northwest Flanders. Uh, so this uh, basically connecting, you know, two pieces of the Pearl District, I guess, uh, over over I-405. So mm. Landers is going to be a really nice, I'm hoping, uh, really nice street for bicycling all the way from essentially uh, Waterfront Park all the way to Northwest 24th. So wow. as you can imagine, mm. yeah, that, that whole street's going to have, you know, diverters in place, which are basically, you know, think of concrete barriers so that people can't drive on, on those blocks of Flanders. Uh, they're going to uh, make it so there's fewer stop signs so that people on bikes can roll smoothly and they're going to do new signals. And, and then there's, of course, this bridge, which is going to get folks over the freeway. So yeah. it's going to be a great connection. It looks really great already. And I know people are already excited to ride. I think we're going to be riding that in, in, a, in a few months. I think by summer that's going to be wow. done. I believe it. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So, and then the other one that's going to be right after that is uh, the Seventh Avenue Bridge, which is, is technically called the Earl, Earl Blumenauer Bicycle and Pedestrian Bridge. Uh, nice. Although I, I, I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know, I just something about naming bridges like that after uh, politicians that are still in office is kind of strange to me. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you, you just never know what might happen these days. So. Uh, you know, I, I kind of think of it more as the Seventh Avenue Bridge, but it, it is named after Earl Blumenauer because he's been such a huge champion for for bicycling in Portland. I mean, he's really the, the sort of standard bearer in a lot of ways. So that's going to connect. I mean, the Central East Side, right, from this industrial area on Seventh over to the Lloyd, which is wow. fun, a funny, a funny twist is it's right out, pretty much right outside uh, Congressman Blumenauer's office. Just <laughs> <laughs> to look out yeah. on this bridge. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so that that's going to be online. I, I would think by you know the end of this year. I mean, the, if you if you drive on I eighty four, you can already see a lot of the yeah. foundations are already in place. So that mm. that's going to be super exciting. And for anybody that bikes in town or even walks, I mean, right now you can really only get over Sullivan's Gulch via you know uh, MLK Grand Couplet, which is not a super yeah. nice place to be. It's essentially a freeway, or mm. you've got to go all the way to twelfth. Yep. Uh, which only has like a, and that's not, it's not terrible, but it's really not the kind of environment that we're trying to make for, for people that don't want to drive, right? Like a safe environment and a, right. kind of a, a calm environment. So 
um, this is going to be a really excellent connection. And that way, the 12th Avenue Bridge, you know, the uh, Benson Heights students can have more room to mm. do what they need yep. to do to get over to get some lunch at the mall and stuff like that. So, anyways. And then awesome. the third one that just went to construction, I think, to yesterday or so, the city sort of announced it, is uh, way over in uh, uh, in southwest Portland. So it's going to be off, like, Beaverton Hillsdale Highway over to, I believe, Capitol Highway. It's going to jump sort of another uh, like a like a gulch, I go through a little patch of the forest there uh, to connect people uh, over on what's going to be a future really really great route over there called the Red Electric Trail, which is going to sort of wind through Southwest and make its way uh, down to Barber and then into into downtown Portland. So this is kind of a key link in that trail. There's only a few sections of that of that trail built, but this is something that apparently the city was able to get some grant money for and get get built and on the ground. So. These are all really great and important things, and we need. I think we need these sort of marquee pieces of, of the biking network and places to walk just to get people out, right? just to encourage people, hey, let, I'm going to go out for a walk on the bridge. It kind of just – it's another excuse to, you know, help someone maybe take the bike to the store instead of driving or, mm-hmm. or, or grab their dog and go for a walk. So these are healthy things, and they're good. Yeah. I'm, I'm That last bridge sounds like a good way for me to enjoy some of this Portland weather. I would yeah. love yeah. to be able to just the, do that. The what? pictures on the, the the red electric one, it really goes right through through a forest. So it's going to be this sort of like a, I don't know, one of these Amazon jungle walks or something. Is what I, when I looked at it, that's kind of what I thought about up there in the canopy, kind of thing going across this little this little ravine. Okay, good. I'm glad you I'm glad you said it like that because that's what I envisioned too. And that's <laughs> why. <laughs> I'm an optimist though, so you, you never know. You know there are there are some pretty big highways next to it, so maybe not quite as serene as I'm envisioning. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there are two new lawsuits relevant to the bike community. One just launched against I5 Rose Quarter Project. The other raising funds to launch against Portland Bureau of Transportation over the Southeast Hawthorne Boulevard project. What do listeners need to know about these lawsuits? Yeah, well, it's really interesting that they're both kind of popping at the same time. Again, I think it's important that second one you mentioned about Hawthorne Boulevard, that's really just basically one person in a GoFundMe who said they want to sue the city and they're trying to raise money uh, mm. for legal fees to do that. So that's not an ah, official I see. Okay. lawsuit. It's got a, quite a bit of support, probably you know, seven, 8000 bucks so far on GoFundMe oh. just to pay for a lawyer and it's got you know hundreds of businesses that are supporting uh, oh, wow. the, the the lawsuit or sorry supporting the bike lane that the lawsuit's about so essentially that that one refers to a decision that the city of portland recently made which we spoke about in a previous uh, segment here on x-ray um which was uh, they had a choice to put a bike lane or not essentially they're, they're restriping hawthorne from about uh, tw- 20th to uh, 50th essentially which is the mm. really the, the heart of hawthorne boulevard all the good shops and all that sort of stuff and so they were doing a, a maintenance project to repave it, and they, they basically told the community, hey, we could put this back however we want. And so it's important, and I think it makes sense. People, a lot of people said, well, you're obviously going to stripe a bike lane, right, so that people can ride on Hawthorne and, right. and, and shop. Um, but that didn't happen. There, it's, it's a longer story. Folks can, can Google it, find out more. But uh, it, didn't, uh, it didn't happen. The city decided to not do that. They restriped it with, with just lanes for driving, and there's no – no bike lane. So there's a group called Healthier Hawthorne started by a gentleman named Zach Katz. And he's been really devoting his life to this cause basically to try to get the, the bike lanes on there. And so he's pretty disappointed in that, that decision. And he is rallying his supporters to try to help him to get to file a lawsuit. So that's interesting. And we're watching that one closely. 
The other one that, I, that, that is definitely further along and I think a lot more serious in terms of the, the person being uh, sued here is the Oregon, the, 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 uh, Oregon Department of Transportation trying to widen I-5 through the Rose Quarter. Uh, you know, folks may have just seen the news about a big rally that was held mm-hmm. at Tubman Middle School, yep. where it's uh, going to be, you know, just what I think when it's all said and done, 30 feet from the new highway lanes that, that uh, ODOT wants to put in there. Of course, ODOT says they're going to build a wall. But it's going to be, I think, twice as high as the as the Berlin Wall. So, going to build this huge noise wall is mm. what they're saying. Anyway, that lawsuit was filed by a trio of groups. There's a group called um, No More Freeways, which has been fighting against that project, uh, I think, very effectively, and and has a, a pretty big coalition of support. They're working with youth from the Sunrise Movement. And they're working with a a group of of young people at actually Tubman Middle School. Um, and then the other people on the lawsuit are Neighbors for Clean Air, which is a, a clean air related, obviously, group here in Portland. Uh, and also the Elliott neighborhood themselves is uh, uh, is on as a um, as a plaintiff on this lawsuit that was filed a few weeks ago. Hmm. And the lawsuit's actually against the uh, Federal Highway Administration, which you know obviously controls the purse strings of of ODOT and has basically hmm. given ODOT blessing to continue with this highway expansion right through um, you know right through Portland Central City. And so the uh, the lawsuit is saying basically pause the project, make ODOT do more environmental analysis because ODOT has chosen to take sort of a shortcut route to environmental analysis, if you can believe it, because they didn't want to do a full-blown analysis that you would be required say. under other <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's just really one of the huge, many problems that um, ODOT has faced in trying to get this project. Uh, it hasn't broken ground, but it's got a, su- a significant amount of funding uh, from Salem allotted to it. Uh, Lawmakers said they've wanted it for years. Uh, in 2017, uh, it, it's got sort of its first official go-ahead, and it's just been a really rocky road for ODOT. I mean, mm. this is the project that the city of Portland, for the first time ever, said, uh, uh, we're not working on this project at all. We're going to pull out all of our staff, so no one's able to even you know, pay any attention to it at all from the wow. city of Portland. And that's the local partner. So that kind of shows you the depth of, of opposition to this thing. And uh, a lot of local politicians have said they don't they don't necessarily support the way ODOT's been going about it. Uh, a group that's re envisioning the Albina district, which is as folks don't know, you know, when I five was built and Memorial Coliseum and the Rose Garden, the Rose Quarter was built, it, it displaced hundreds and hundreds of, of homes. Many of them are where where black people lived in the Albina neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, and then were forced out up to Williams, and that changed a lot. So. This is really sort of the, the epicenter of this whole idea of gentrification and, and racist highways, which, uh, uh, interestingly, now the, the U.S. government and the Biden administration is actually talking about directly. So that's kind of, you know, what what's happening there. So, uh, you know, the group that's redoing the Albina neighborhood called, called Albina Vision Trust, they're also mm. opposed to the I-5 Rose Quarter project. So it's got significant opposition, and this lawsuit is really sort of uh, this high point for that opposition, and now it's buoyed by a national movement. So there are, there are groups all over the country now that are saying no to freeway projects uh, and really fighting them, them hard. Uh, in Texas, there's a group that got the federal government to actually do what local people in Portland are asking them to do, which is to say, hey, you got to pause this big freeway expansion. So it's really an interesting lawsuit, and it's been sort of fascinating to watch how support has grown against the project, so opposition has grown, and just to watch ODOT try to just rah, just to do the spin and to mm-hmm. try to try to say that it's okay. They're they recently are trying to rebrand the project to like basically give it a new logo 
and it's just really uh, sort of sad and yeah. you know, desperate they are. But it's it's really not a not a great project in a lot of ways, and, and people are coming out of the woodwork and finding out why now, and, and that lawsuit has been a, a really effective vehicle in, the, in helping mm. educate people about it. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. So much. Thank You're you welcome. so much, Jonathan. Just Thanks for having me on. Forward. Appreciate it. We've been talking with Bike Portland's founder and editor, Jonathan Miles. You can read all about the safety routes for all bill and lots more on bikeportland.com. Thanks for stopping by, John. Thanks to Jonathan for joining the local and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.